Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of lectures in which entertainer Jeremy Hardy examines the vicissitudes of modern living. In tonight's program, Jeremy Hardy explains how to be an adult. Good evening and welcome to the program. As you will no doubt have heard by now, tonight's program is called How to Be an Adult. <laughs> and as usual, I am accompanied by two people who are prepared to work with me, Stephen Frost Hello. and Debbie Isis. Hello. Since the series began, we've been literally bombarded by Unita rebels in Angola. <laughs> here are some of your letters. Dear BBC, I was interested to see advertised free tickets for recordings of Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation. I wrote off to the address, and the so-called free tickets arrived. Not so free when you consider that my return train ticket from Cardiff Central cost £38.92. Dear Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, half-hour radio programme this may be, tense psychological thriller it most certainly is not. In vain I waited for the kaleidoscopic montage of flashbacks relating to an actual or imagined slaying and the final and disturbing hypnosis sequence in which the psychiatrist exposes the dwarf Spanish nun in the ventricle as the actual killer. Dear Mr. Nation, I was appalled by your programme's treatment of the desert rats. To many people, those brave men are heroes who fought to keep their country free, and yet your programme chose to make no mention of them whatsoever. <laughs> Rather than be ignored, I should think that those much-decorated veterans should all be given a medal. Is that all of them? Yeah, we've got a review, though. It says, Jeremy Hardy speaks to the nation, is neither Jeremy nor Hardy, nor speaks to the nation. Who wrote that? A journalist, I should think. Yeah, figures. So, on to the subject of tonight's programme, how to be an adult. This being quite a massive topic, I have divided it into its three most important areas. One. How to conduct yourself. Two. How to organise your personal finances. And three. How to do grown-up things without going utterly to pieces and wanting your mum and dad to sort everything out for you. <laughs> Firstly, how to conduct yourself. The fact of being an adult can come as quite a shock. I realised it had started to happen to me when I was watching Top of the Pops this year and found myself saying, well, it all sounds the same, doesn't it? <laughs> There's nothing you can tap your feet to. In the old days, we had the pistols and the buzzcocks, something with a bit of a tune, but... <laughs> this rap? That's not music, you can hear the words. I also realised on my child's third birthday that being a father is not so much gaining a daughter as becoming a parent. There are all these new things I have to do. I have to provide, I have to plan for the future, and I have to drive without using the F word. <laughs> Even if I didn't think about what I was saying in front of a child, the conversations I have with adults have changed now that I'm supposed to be one as well. I can't walk into the bank and say, lend me 10 quid till tomorrow to save me going to the bank. <laughs> I can't phone my solicitor back and say, I'm sorry about that, I was just having a dump. I can't I can't tell a magistrate I haven't paid my poll tax because my little brother ripped up my paying in book. <laughs> I have to become one of those people I never thought I'd be. I find myself saying things like, it is expensive, but not for what it is. And we're only really inviting a few people, so don't say anything to Patrick and Lorraine. <laughs> Age isn't the only factor affecting how we conduct ourselves. There are a whole range of cultural, social and historical factors. For example, what constitutes good manners varies around the world. 
in some countries, belching at the dinner table is considered a great compliment to your host, and profuse vomiting is considered a great compliment to your tour guide. <laughs> and, of course, within our culture, manners are influenced by social class. An upper-class man might dress for dinner, and I always, myself, try to at least have my knickers on when the pizza man arrives. <laughs> and traditionally, different manners are expected of different sexes. Women are supposed to be more dainty than men. You may know the old maxim, horses sweat, gentlemen perspire, and ladies glow. Or the even less well-known one, ladies powder their noses, gentlemen use the bathroom, and horses leave unbelievably huge turds all over the road. <laughs> and men are supposed to be gallant towards women. A gentleman must always stand up when a lady enters a room. I don't know why, to prove that he's taller than her, probably. <laughs> if a man and a woman are walking down the pavement, he is supposed to walk on the outside so that she has to climb over the homeless. <laughs> Of course, things which just seem to be pointless traditions today often have very practical reasons behind them. When houses were built with upper stories overhanging the street, people would throw their human waste out of the windows. And so if a lady walked on the inside, the man would get hit instead of her. Mind you, I don't know what's more humiliating, getting covered with excrement or being seen out on a date with someone who's covered with excrement. <laughs> Oh, I see Noel's got a new boyfriend. Really? What's he like? Mm, great big jobby sticking out of his head. But he's got a nice personality. <laughs> According to custom, women are the more passive sex. A man must woo in the Middle Ages, and knights would win his lady's hand if she admired his jousting skills. So she'd end up married to a bloke who was no good in bed but couldn't half knock people off horses with a stick. <laughs> So, how we conduct ourselves is affected by history, nationality, sex, class, and even occupation. An Englishwoman might kiss my cheek and by that be saying... I'm fond of you as a friend. A Romanian man might kiss me on both cheeks and mean... Cheers then, be lucky. An Italian might kiss my hand and mean... Hello, you're the Pope. <laughs> Someone in show business might kiss me on both cheeks and mean... Eat shit and die, whatever your name is. <laughs> And a relative might kiss me on the forehead and mean... He looks much better than he ever did when he was alive. <laughs> the more adult we are, the less clear it is what people are saying to us. Let's look at some everyday situations in which Debbie is going to give us some examples of common phrases and Steve is going to tell us what is meant by them. In the street. Well, I mustn't keep you. I have run out of things to say to you and want you to carry on walking. On the telephone. Well, it was nice to hear from you. Please return the handset to the receiver and call someone else. At a party. Do you two know each other? I have forgotten both your names. In a shop. Oh, I'll think about it and come back. £280 for a pair of underpants? You must be joking. £280 for a pair of underpants. Yes, all right, Steve. What, what? Well, once was enough. I don't really want you to repeat it. Oh, that was wonderful. I can hardly move. What? What? That's what you'd say if you meant once was enough. I don't really want you to repeat it. Oh. <laughs> anyway, what I think we've learned is that part of conducting oneself as an adult means not speaking your mind. And you not only have to doctor what you say, you also have to interpret what other people are saying to you. When someone says... Tell me honestly, they mean lie to me with conviction. <laughs> Even total strangers play games with each other and you have to understand the rules. 
Let's say Debbie faces a long train ride and she doesn't want to talk to anyone, but she also feels unable to say, I'm sorry, I just want to be in my own space right now. Let's see how she gets on in this scene in which Stephen plays a man trying to entrap her into a conversation. Initially, Debbie resists. I'm sorry? Debbie's first big mistake. Steve now has an opportunity. Oh, nothing. Sorry if I disturbed you. I was just having a quiet touch to myself out loud, that's all. Debbie can bail out now by saying, Oh, good, I'll ignore you then. Let's hear what she actually says. Is anything wrong? Oh, no, not really, no. I just don't believe it, that's all. <laughs> oh. Not bad. Debbie has reduced the potential for dialogue with a non-committal but not impolite response. She now has four seconds in which to become completely absorbed in something else. She can fall asleep, look out of the window with unnatural interest, drool excessively, or get things out of her ear with a bent coat hanger. <laughs> Instead, she tries reading. What's that you're reading? Uh-oh, Steve's interested. Oh, yeah, it's called Understanding Your Flatulence. Good move, Debbie. But what's his response? Ah, oh, so nice to meet a fellow sufferer. <laughs> Lucky you chose me to sit next to. A lot of people don't understand. You might have a colonic stoppage. I can have a look for you if you like. Debbie's flatulence gambit was a mistake. She must steer the conversation under something else. Let's talk about something else. Hold on, I'll find me torch. <laughs> Tell me about you. Here we are. Now, where's my gardening gloves? Look, there was something you were tutting about. I just don't believe it, you said. Oh, you don't want to hear about that. Ah, salad tongs. Oh, I do want to hear about it. I really do. Please, please, tell me, tell me. Okay, well, it all started a long, long, long time ago. I must have been three or four years old at the time. And the years went by. And then I was seven. See, that's how it all happened. No one else wanted the job. So I ended up leader of the Liberal Democratic Party. <laughs> Can we count on your vote at the next election? So there we are. A nightmare scenario brought on by our inability to win at the kind of social mind games we come up against every day. Well, never. But it's all a very long way from the kind of interaction we experience as children. Children might talk rubbish, but it's passionate, exuberant rubbish about games and food and telly and gravel-related injuries. Children don't say, basically, or how goes it, or I kid you not. They don't invoice you. They say, can I have money for sweets? And if you say, how much do you want? They don't say, oh, I wouldn't like to put a figure on it. I'll see how I get on and then give you a bell later on this afternoon. <laughs> If you won't give them money, they don't send you a court summons. They just go round all the neighbours saying, will you sponsor me? <laughs> but being an adult is not necessarily to do with age. You can start or stop being an adult at any age. Child prodigies are terrifyingly adult. Of course, one has to remember that they are often having very serious emotional problems so that one can think, good, at least there's something wrong with the little bastards. <laughs> But the point is that they seem really old, while old people can seem like a bunch of kids. We think that second child is about incontinence and dementia, but it isn't necessarily. Old people are like kids because they fill up all the buses, talk too loud, eat sweets all day, have filthy minds and don't remember anything you tell them. <laughs> of course, in other ways, they're not like children at all. Children have a lot more money for a start. <laughs> 
more energy. It's a tragic fact that at the time in our lives when we have the most energy, there's not really a lot we can do. Children use the same energy it would take to run the London Marathon in the average school playtime, doing things which are utterly pointless. But if I wanted to run the London Marathon, I'd have to train for two years to do something utterly pointless. <laughs> but in general, conducting yourself as an adult means that there are loads of things you can't do anymore and loads of things you have to do that you didn't have to do before. That's why adolescence, the supposed transition to adulthood, is a completely full start. True, your body starts to exhibit all the physical signs of maturity, apart from baldness and fat buttocks. <laughs> don't really want to be an adult, because all the adults you know are so acutely aware of your adolescence, they've all gone weird on you. Let's listen to this extract from a popular television programme, which in this episode deals with teenage problems. Hey, you're not eating your tea, Kevin? I can't, Mum. What's wrong with it? When your mother spends all day cooking and cleaning, I'm out looking for work. I'm a vegetarian. That's why I made you our omelette. It's a liver omelette. So, he's not only demands vegetarian food now, he doesn't want any meat in it. Oh, it's because of that girl. She's not a girl, she's a woman. Oh, excuse us, Jermaine Pankhurst. She's 47, Dad. She's an architect. And I'm going away to London to move in with her for good. You go away to London to move in with her for good, and you can get out of this house. He goes, and I'm going with him. You can't, ma'am. Teresa's only got a one-bedroom flat. Oh, Teresa now, is it? Her name's Teresa. We're not allowed to call her that old sack that's hanging around with our Kevin anymore because he's not good enough for her. Did you hear me, Desi? I'm going with him and I'll stay in a dirty bed and breakfast if I have to. You're going nowhere. You're grounded. You can't ground me. I'm your wife. I don't say nowhere. Stop it. Stop it. You're driving me mad. I'm just a football in this house. I'm going out. God, kids. What do you reckon? Drugs? Oh, yes, please, love. I could do with something. <laughs> Yeah, the pangs of the transition to adulthood. Of course, once you're 20, you realise what you suspected was true and that adulthood is a thoroughly bad business and you regress because being an adult means responsibility. Ten years ago, I would not have bought a car to get me from A to B. I wasn't even sure I wanted to go to B. I had hoped at one time I'd get as far as H. I would have bought a car in those days because you could take the roof off and because it was impossible to get the parts. Now if I look through someone's window and see they're having a few friends round for dinner, I don't rush home, fill up an empty cider bottle, go back, knock on the door and say Dave said it would be all right. And I'm not sure I approve of the changes in myself brought on by age. I comfort myself with the thought that I want different things now I'm over 30. But the fact is, I want the same things. I just want them delivered. <laughs> of course, I've got contemporaries who are more grown up or less grown up than I am. I know someone who is my age, but when he gets excited, he hops like a little kid and his eyes get all big and filled with childlike wonder and he says, Ow, brilliant! The sad thing is, what makes him excited is garden furniture and tax relief on endowment mortgages. <laughs> I know other people who are completely irresponsible, who are going to lay down a demo as soon as they get it together, or who come up with a scheme to fish old shopping trolleys out of the canal in order to do them up and sell them, or, or who, when they're on aeroplanes and they have to fill in a landing card, they put terrorism where it says purpose of visit. <laughs> By the by, a general note is that when dealing with authority, a joke does not break the tension. When you are asked... Have you worked in the last two weeks? You'll be taken at your word if you say... Oh, yeah, I've been ambassador to Turkey. 
If someone says to you, Could I see some means of identification? It may hold things up if you retort, Do you want to see my appendix scar or the mole on my bum? <laughs> if you hear the question, Can you tell me what's in the boot of your car, miss? And you reply, Uh, a bald tyre and a stash of ecstasy, I think, officer. You may find that it's not the right thing to say. <laughs> As it turns out, what's actually in there is heroin, cocaine, and a quantity of whatever else they happen to have in. <laughs> When you're young and rebellious, you think everyone's out to get you. It's only when you grow up you realise that they have. <laughs> That's why it's worthwhile knowing your rights. Of course, we have no Bill of Rights or written constitution in this country. So what rights do we have? Well, you can graze your geese on common land and take things back at Marks and Spencer's. <laughs> As I get older, although I haven't yet become a liberal myself, I have more and more respect for liberals. Not the Lib Dems particularly, but passionate, decent, old-fashioned liberals. Because when liberals hear about some abuse of power, they are outraged that such things can go on, determined that something must be done and moved to put pen to paper. Sometimes they even put pen to placard. They turned out for the miners with their own personal homemade banners saying things like, Please, Mr. Hesseltine, think about what you are doing and reconsider. <laughs> Which is a bugger of a chant to get behind. <laughs> Whereas the left are so used to expecting the worst, it's much more of an effort for us to do anything about it. We have marches every week, and the main reason I go on them is you can get through London in half the time it takes by car. <laughs> Nowadays, my militancy consists of sitting in front of the news saying bastards periodically. <laughs> Some people think that part of growing up is the loss of idealism. But is there any physiological basis for the theory that we become more conservative as we mature? Well, it's true our brain cells die as we get older. Another possible explanation... Another possible explanation is that we become less confident and optimistic, so we hanker for the world of our childhood, a world in which we can remember feeling secure. Although the fact that I can remember a time when there was full employment, a health service, school textbooks and streets where it was safe to walk does not endear me to the policies of the Conservative Party. <laughs> but perhaps we're not as keen to actually revolt against the present system if we feel we have a stake in it. You're less likely to want to throw up barricades in your street if it means donating your new dining room table to the struggle. <laughs> and we don't often see Labour politicians on picket lines anymore because they're worried about their suits getting crumpled. <laughs> But is the preservation of social order really in our long-term interest? Take this simple model. Let's say your principal assets are a car which you own and a video camera which you bought when they were still the size of rocket launchers and which you don't use very often. <laughs> On the liability side, you have a slight overdraft, an unpaid access bill and a mortgage of £60,000. Now, let's say civil disturbance breaks out. Your car is turned over by rioters and your camcorder is smashed by the police. But if the revolution succeeds, although you might be required to put up the cast of the battleship Potemkin in your spare room, on the plus side, you'll never have to pay another penny of your mortgage. Of course, revolutions can go badly wrong, and there's always the chance that a right-wing backlash will exploit their power vacuum and that the building societies will take over. <laughs> but what I hope I've shown is that the more responsibilities we have, the more anger we might feel about things that didn't affect us much before. Yes, I want my daughter to be able to write, but I don't want her to have to sit a three-hour paper every morning invigilated by the managing director of a local building firm. <laughs> yes, I want the police to protect my family from burglary and murder and crack dealing, but I don't need them to protect me from black people who are driving. 
No, I don't want to go to the cinema and see tasteless, exploitative rubbish with entrails spilling out all over the place. But if people want to eat Westless hot dogs, that should be their choice. Jezza, I'm going to have to stop you there for a moment because we've got more complaints coming I'll go on then. Dear BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, more like un-British pro-IRA politically correct Jewish conspiracy corporation. (laughs) I was disgusted by Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation. If people have to use humour to get a laugh, then God help us all. Dear Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation radio programme, you wouldn't think so. For a change, I took up the offer of tickets for your programme and went along to the studio. I sat down in my seat and turned on my radio, but immediately my enjoyment was completely spoiled by three people clowning around and showing off in front of what can only be described as an audience. Well, thank you for those letters cast. And I think what they show us is that it's still possible to feel passionately angry about something even though you're so old you've completely lost your mind. (laughs) I shall now move on to part two of our discourse in which I tell you how to organise your personal finances. And with budget day coming up in just a few months' time, what more pertinent opportunity to take a pennywise look at the ins and outs of your savings and investments? You are. Oh, leave me alone. Sorry. <laughs> as we've already seen, how we behave as an adult and the kinds of things we say and do are very much affected by our financial position. Someone who's just been turned out of their flat by a slum landlord and his thugs is unlikely to remark that they do say moving house is one of the most stressful times in your life. <laughs> But we can really only see things from our own perspective. I've spent most of the last two years trying to sell my flat and buy a house. And now when I see homeless people begging in the street, I find myself thinking, well, at least they haven't got a full structural survey to pay for. (laughs) But it's a lot easier to feel generous towards others when your own situation is fairly secure, which is odd because the rich are tight-fisted kids. So, how do you set about building a financially sound future for yourself and your family? Well, we all know that careful saving and investment are important. But do you really want to be one of those people who listen to Moneybox? Avaricious, petty bourgeois inadequate, who know whether a child is more tax-efficient than a loft conversion, and who are sexually aroused by the money pages of the Daily Mail. And the sick thing is, none of them have got any money, not real money. They're just fascinated by the interest they could be making if they had. They've got one telecom share and a tidy little sum tucked away in an instant-saving super gold portfolio account where they give you a shiny folder for your statements with a hologram picture of two old people laughing on the cover. (laughs) And you can choose whether the bank adds the interest to your account annually or just keeps it. Of course, you don't have to have a lot of money to become a saver. You can open a building society account with as little as one pound. But what's the point? If you've only got a quid, I should have thought you're likely to need to get at your money rather quickly. You're not going to stick it in the Abbey National after get the bus to the high street every time you want to dip into it. I mean, honestly, we're all supposed to be making provision for their future when most people don't even know if they can get through the present without robbing a security van. And when you walk past the bank and there's a man in blue with a helmet carrying a sack full of money, you always think, God, I bet if I just grabbed it and ran, he'd be so surprised he wouldn't even follow me. (laughs) You're probably thinking that I'm not the best person to be giving financial advice. But who is? Five years ago, property was a sound investment, the Docklands had a great future, and BCCI was the friend of small business people. Now it seems the only wise investors are the people who held on to their flares through the 80s. (laughs) Of 
course, the 80s was the era of new money. Brash young men in suits setting up as independent financial advisors. And those of us who get tearful and sweaty at the thought of anything more complicated than a cash point card thought, praise God, at last there are people whose job it is purely to help me organise my life with no taint of any interest of their own, independent in thought and deed, and a slave to no man's commission. Tell me, tell me, oh wise one, what's a mortgage? Uh, come in, come in, sit down. Uh, Jeremy, isn't it? Uh, yes. Now, Jeremy, uh, can I call you Mr Hardy? Uh, yes, by all means, yes. Now, Mr Hardy, you want to buy a flat? Yes. Right. And you want to borrow the money? Yes. Right. Now, I expect you'd like a bit of tax relief. What's that? Money. Oh, yes, please. Now, do you think you'd rather have a little bit of tax relief or a lot? Uh, a lot? Okay. Businessmen, I can tell. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Let's just knock up a little chart here. Excuse me, I'm no Michelangelo da Vinci. <laughs> now, <laughs> right, now, which one of these graphs would you say looks like ours? That one. This one? The one with the curve? Yeah. Well... You just pointed to the flexible rate insurance mortgage with the National Loan Sharks Corporation. Did I? Mr Price? Uh, what is it, Fiona? I've just had a call from Mr Price at the National Loan Sharks Corporation. He says if by any chance you've got any clients currently interested in an insurance mortgage, he happens to have a special offer of a portable car vacuum cleaner, but the offer closes in seven minutes. <laughs> Well, it looks like you're an even more shrewd financial whisker than we thought, Mr Hardy. Thank you. Now, there is a risk with this mortgage. Life's a risk. You take a gamble when you put a grand on the GGs, don't you? So, that's what the National Loan Sharks do. Put your money on the horses. <laughs> now, do you know about insurance mortgages? No. Right. Well, you're going to die. We're all going to die. Fact. We don't like it, but it's tough titty. Now, how do you feel about leaving the wife and kids in the shit so your missus has to go out on the game and the kids get rickets? Well, uh... Now, you got any kids yet? Not yet. Firing blanks. Well, well, we will. We will. Look. So, you want insurance. Now, let's say you've got a malignant tumour now. Have I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're riddled, right? Falling to bits, so you're dying, in other words. Oh. We're all dying but especially you. Now, with an insurance mortgage, you die younger, but better looking. But you don't want to lose your tax relief, so the waiver premium unlimited gullibility clause allows your wife and kids to keep paying the mortgage interest until the endowment matures when you would have been 90, and the lump sum pays off all the interest you would have paid if you'd been alive, leaving the mortgage untouched so the kids have still got a nice big loan to pay off in their retirement. Now, that sounds pretty tempting, doesn't it? Well, I'm in your hands. Where do I sign? Did you see that crime take place? Maybe you were passing by and noticed something unusual. Call now and help us find the callous spiff who mugged little Jeremy Hardy. Thank you, Deborah. That reconstruction brings me on to the subject of tax. The whole tax system is perverse. And VAT, I cannot fathom. I know it's designed to screw the poor. That bit I've got the hang of. But I'm self-employed. I have to charge people VAT, and I'm not mature enough to do that. I have to do some work and then charge VAT, which I must then give to Her Majesty's Customs and Excise, who give it back to the people I did the work for. 
And the money actually has to change hands. Wouldn't it be so bad if you could do it with matchsticks or chocolate buttons? <laughs> At least then you could make it into a game. But this stuff's for real. You make a mistake. You forget to write something down. And they don't say, oh, don't worry about it. Just buy me a drink next time I see you. You're under investigation. They want to rip up your floorboards and search for Spanish doubloons. Take your bedroom apart and sniff all your pants. Why won't everyone just leave me alone? This brings me on to the third and final part of my lecture. How to do grown-up things without going utterly to pieces and wanting your mum and dad to sort everything out for you. But I've already shown that I can't cope, so there's no point carrying on. Oh, come on, Jezza. You've got lots of things to live for. No, I mean there's no point carrying on with my lecture. Oh, well, we knew that. Thank you. <laughs> Anything else we've got to do before we wrap things up? A couple of complaints phoned in. A man says the sound effect of the door in the teenage boy scene was made by a door made from Scottish pine and that building firms in the Liverpool area are much more likely to use cheaper imported Scandinavian wood. He says, please, Mr Hardy, get it right in future. That's nothing. Someone else has offered advice to Kevin's mum and dad. They say, don't worry, we had the same thing with our teenage son, but now he works for the National Westminster Bank. <laughs> Oh, so would someone do some credits for me? Jezza, take control over your life. Jeremy Hardy Speaks the Nation was written by Jeremy Hardy and starred Jeremy Hardy, although I don't really feel able to take on that kind of responsibility. But I do feel a lot of support from Debbie Isaac and Stephen Frost. Uh, the authority figure was David Tyler, and the programme was a positive production for the BBC, and I, I think I need to be alone for a while. <laughs> <laughs>